you so much, Matt. Very generous and really delighted to be here this morning, uh, especially with friends from Patterson, Doug Goulding, Matt Anderson, John Algara. Really appreciate your leadership in, in Patterson and friends here in Wyckoff. Really appreciate uh, Andy Oran and the, getting this started over the years. John Stanley, Fred Provencher, Tom Campisi, Mark Borst more recently. So delighted to be with you here. This morning, I want to add two questions to Tom Cole's questions. The first question I want to ask is, what will you do this year to dwell with God more deeply? What will you do this year to dwell with God more deeply? And then secondly, what will you do this year to dwell with someone who's different than yourself? Those are the topics we're going to talk about briefly this morning. We're going to begin with a, a video to give a little bit of historical context. Uh, 2011, uh, Tim Keller and I did a video together. We were working on an initiative to impact New York called the New York City Movement Project. And this video will give you a little bit of the thinking that we've had over the last uh, few decades. So we're going to show the video, and then I'm going to share a few thoughts. This video was shot back in 2011, four, uh, 14, 13 years ago. This last May 19th, it was a Friday, uh, Tim Keller passed at the age of 72. I remember the day vividly. It was the day that my oldest grandson turned nine years old. Uh, providentially, Tim was born on September 23rd, 1950. And the, the interesting thing about that date is that date is the 93rd anniversary of the Fulton Street Revival that began in Manhattan and swept the United States and was really the last great spiritual awakening uh, in our country. In 2011, I interviewed Tim for a book called Consequential Leadership, and I asked Tim to describe for me the birth of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989, and he said the unknown fact about Redeemer's beginning is that we had 500 Presbyterian Churches of America praying every day for the successful planting of Redeemer. He said it's never happened before and it's never happened since. And since Redeemer was started in 1989, in the last 35 years, there have been 750 churches planted around the world. That is an illustration of fruitfulness. The question is, why does fruitfulness matter? Fruitfulness matters because we live in an extraordinarily broken world. We live in a divided nation. Beginning with the election cycle of 2016 all the way up to the present, we have, lived, we have lived in an environment where the whole country has been torn apart across lines that are racial, demographic, and gender. And I really believe, to the core of my being, that a divided church cannot speak into a divided culture, which is why the unity of the church is such a high priority for us. Unity across denomination, across race, across geography. Another evidence of the brokenness of our country is that unless something changes, 50% of our churches will disappear by the year 2050. I encourage you to read the essay entitled Why, The Great Opportunity, thegreatopportunity.org. It's the best analysis on the American church that I have seen in 50 years. And it really describes what's going to happen unless something changes. Globally, there is this degree of brokenness all over the world. There is a very strong anti-Christian sentiment. In places like Manipur, India, in the eastern part of the, of the country, there have been 250 churches that have been burned to the ground. And the Hindu nationalist government has just completely turned its eye. And so there's a powerful need for the global church to rally together to work 
with the church in India. So the question is, if, if God's desire for us is to be fruitful, what is his strategy? What is God's strategy to lead each of us individually and for us collectively in this idea of fruitfulness? I would suggest that it boils down to one word. It's a familiar word that we read all the time, but I don't know if we've spent much time thinking about it. The one word is simply the word dwell. In the Old Testament, the word dwell is used approximately 400 times. The climax of God's usage of the word dwell comes to us in the sixth verse of the 23rd Psalm. In 23 verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the presence of God forever. The first word, surely, is really the Hebrew word only. And that's a significant word because David is saying, even in the midst of great tragedies and struggles, God's presence is so real that when we enter into God's presence, it is so powerful that compared to the difficult things of life, he can say, only goodness and mercy. And then he says, will surely follow me. And the word surely, the word surely, or the word follow is the word pursue. So the way that it reads in Hebrew is that only goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And the word pursue is an imperfect verb whose action never ends. And so what David is saying in Psalm 23, verse 6, is that God is pursuing us every second of every day, and he will continue to pursue us all the way into heaven, where we will dwell with him forever. That is God's goal for our lives and God's goal for the church. When you get to the New Testament, the word dwell is often referred to as the word abide or remain. The climax in John chapter 1 verse 14 says that he came to dwell among us and, and he moved into the neighborhood. This is the mystery of the incarnation. In, in John chapter 15, if you have your Bible, I'd like to read this to us. This is John chapter 15, verses 9 through 16, and this really is the convergence of this idea of dwelling and bearing fruit. This is what John writes. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So the question is, if, if the strategy to become fruitful, how do we actually dwell with God more intimately? I really believe that the width of our influence, the width of our spiritual influence, is in proportion to the depth of our spiritual intimacy with God. Amen. So if you think about your life, and as you, as you do some self-assessment, what is the width of your spiritual influence? In the year... 1984, 40 years ago, I had just come back from doing a summer program in North India. In North India, we were in a state the size of Nebraska that had 100 million people. 
the ratio of Hindus and Muslims to Christians was 100,000 to one. And while we were there, we were challenged to pick up a discipline of reading the Bible in 90 days. 1984, I did that discipline. It was great, impactful, I never thought about it again. In 2010, I was stimulated to pick up this discipline again. I had been reading the Bible through every 90 days since 2010 up to the current day. Last week, I began my 57th reading of the Bible in 90 days. And the impact of that is that it has completely transformed my sense of what God is doing in the world. When you, when you read the Bible through in 90 days, you get to read the story of creation, how God flings the stars into the universe, and how he creates the universe with his spoken word. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read about the fall of, the fall of Adam and Eve and how God condemned humanity to death. But even in that experience, God stooped to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness, and he provided a city of refuge for Abel, even though he had been a murderer. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read about Abraham and how God called Abraham in Genesis 12, and he gave him a promise that he would make his name great, that he would bless all the nations of the earth, and that he would give him a land. We are living in the fulfillment of that 4,000-year-old promise. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read about the story of Joseph, how Joseph was put in the pit, he was put in Potiphar's house, he was put in prison, and then he was put in the palace. He spent 13 years in prison as God was preparing him to put him in a position of leadership that would save, save all of humanity from starvation. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read the story of Moses and how Moses was an 80-year-old refugee on the backside of a mountain. In Exodus chapter 3, within 100 words, Moses, the 80-year-old, was commanded to go confront Pharaoh as the most powerful leader in the history of the world. He was commanded to deliver a nation of 2 million people out of Israel. God so powerfully used Moses that he gave us the Pentateuch that we read today. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read about characters like Ruth, who was so fantastically loyal to Naomi that God wove her into the Messianic line. When you read the Bible every 90 days and, and you read the story of Nehemiah, you read about a marketplace leader who was used by God to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. He became, he became a symbol of how a marketplace leader can completely transform their city. When you read the Bible every 90 days, you read about the great, uh, great messages of Isaiah. Isaiah 7 and 9, who talks about the coming Messiah. You read in Isaiah 56, where God calls his people to be a house of prayer for all nations. In Isaiah 58, you read about this call to justice to release people from shackles and bondage. You read in Isaiah 61, the call of the gospel to preach to the poor. In Isaiah 62, you read about this idea of giving God no rest and giving yourselves no rest until he accomplishes his purposes in all the earth. You read Micah 6, 8, where God commands us. He commands us to walk humbly, to love mercy, and to do justice. Each of these three verbs, to walk, to love, and to do justice, are imperfect. These are verbs that are very important in understanding how we, how we live out our life of faith. That's what happens when you read the Bible every 90 days. And then you get to the New Testament. And you read the Gospels, and in the Gospels we read the story of Jesus, who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we should have died, and in his death, he put death to death.
And Jesus broke every barrier. He broke the barrier of, of religion and race and gender. And Jesus comes to us and he invites us to follow him. We read in Acts chapter 9 this dramatic, incur, dramatic encounter between Jesus and, and Paul. And in this encounter of Acts chapter 9, Paul is, he, his, his mind and his heart are filled with the power of encountering Jesus. And Paul was the most violent racist of the first century, and he became the primary author of the New Testament. And he taught us, he taught us that God can transform any person. And then you look at the work of Paul in his missionary journeys, and he planted the seed so that Christianity grew to 25,000 people by the end of the first century. And by the year 312, Christianity grew from 25,000 to 20 million through the cities of southern Europe and western Asia. When you read the Bible through every 90 days, God keeps this vision in front of you, and you get a sense of where God is going in the world. How are you dwelling with God? What is the priority that you're giving to that in your own life? And I would suggest that as we get older, for those of us who are at the beginning of Star of Hope 110 years ago, <laughs> that as we get older, our roots have to go deeper. And it's, it's a great opportunity for us. It's been said that people in their 60s and 70s are living in their two most fruitful decades. That's an opportunity that we have. In addition to reading the Bible every 90 days, there's a few other things that I read. I read this every day. It's called The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller. It's a journey through the book of Psalms. I have an extra copy. If you'd like this, I'd be happy to give it to you. During Lent, I read the work of Walter Wengren. This is called Preparing for Jesus, a fantastic writer. He has a book for Advent and for Lent. I have an extra copy. would love to give it to you if you're interested. This is the book that I've been using for 25 years with my wife. It's called A Guide to Prayer for All God's People, and it follows a liturgical calendar. This is my only copy, so I'm not giving this one away. <laughs> but I really believe that we have to have a strategy. We have to have an intention around what it means to dwell with God. And if nothing else happens this year, that's where we need to begin. But we just don't dwell with God. We also dwell with one another. And we need to understand that we're dwelling with others in a specific context. When I was doing a little bit of research on Patterson and the Bronx, uh, it says that there are approximately 40,000 people living in Patterson who are living on less than $30,000 a year. When you look at the Bronx, there are about 400,000 people living in the Bronx on less than $30,000 a year. So the gospel is good news in communities that are really challenged economically. When I, uh, when I moved to New York in 1984, my wife was three months pregnant. We had sold all of our possessions. We didn't have a place to live. And the family that took us in was an African-American pastor family. And this was significant for a couple of reasons. I had grown up in South Dakota, 16 miles away from a Native American reservation that had 80% unemployment. And these Native Americans would come to my family bank. My family's had a bank for 110 years. They would borrow money. Sometimes they would pay it back. Sometimes they wouldn't. And when they didn't pay the loans back, we had no authority to repossess any of their property. So I developed a prejudice against Native Americans. When we, when we grew up, my, wife, my mother was from South Carolina. She had about 11 siblings. And we would visit every other year. 
and her county, Williamsburg County, was about 70% African American. And I could see the, the simmering hostility between whites and African Americans in South Carolina. And so I grew up with a dual prejudice. And when we arrived in New York in 1984, to have this African American couple take us in was so transformative, it taught us that the most powerful thing this side of heaven is being radically loved by somebody radically different. And that's what God is inviting us into in this whole idea of dwelling. He wants us to have an, a, an intentional relationship with a person who's different from ourselves. So that is one of the questions for 2024. What is the depth of your relationship with someone who is different than yourself? That's when we begin to see the economy of the kingdom. And we're living in this context as we, as we came out of COVID a few years ago. In, in June of 2020, Bloomberg Magazine said that COVID was so impactful that 41% of African-American businesses went under. A similar percentage of African-American churches went under economically. If you're a white person versus being a, a person, a minority person, your access to capital, your access to capital is nine times greater. And that has contributed to the great economic divide that we have in America. The United States has 25% of the global prison population. That is a legacy of slavery. And we are living with that in the modern day American context. And God is inviting us as the faith community to step into that reality to make a difference for people so they have a future and a hope. Dwelling with, with some, dwelling with someone really begins with two things. It begins with conversation because everybody has a story. 25 years ago at our pastor's prayer summit, I met a pastor from Patterson, New Jersey, and I asked him where he grew up. He said he grew up in South Carolina. I said, that's where I grew up. And I said, what town in South Carolina? He said, King Street. I said, that's where my family's from. And then I said, what's your name? He said his name was Mackenzie, which is my name. And I realized in that moment, there was a really good chance that somebody in my past owned somebody in his past. And it was a realization that, that even with this very painful history, that now that we are people of faith, we are family. And that we are called to create a better future together. So conversation, and then secondly, hospitality. It was hospitality that opened the door for us in 1984 to enter into a whole new realm of families with other people, particularly those that were different from ourselves. So there, I want to just mention a couple opportunities here to dwell. Uh, Matt mentioned the Pastors Prayer Summit, which happens January 22 to 24. Pastors, leaders come. And would love to have any of you who, can, who have time to come, even for a day, to be with us. Uh, you can read about it at the movement.org website. We've been doing this for 34 years. But that's really an opportunity where leaders can dwell together. And this is really where friendship is birthed. It's, it's really rooted in dwelling in God together. We have shared mission. We align opportunities and resources. And 2 Corinthians reminds us that though Jesus was rich, he chose to become poor. 
My family bank uh, is 110 years old this year, and I decided to not go into banking to be a missionary. In 1984, we sold our possessions, we moved to Queens, and in the past 12 years, let me preface this, my life verse comes from Joshua 13, verse 33. And in Joshua 13, Joshua is dividing up the inheritance, and he says to the Levites, or God says to the Levites, you get no inheritance because the Lord is your inheritance. And that verse has always meant to me that God is simply enough. In the last 12 years, through a variety of circumstances, I've been able to give back 100% of my income, or gross or net income, six times. And God has really allowed me to lean into that verse, that our generosity is usually not measured by what we give, but by why we keep. And so this is an invitation to us to think radically about what this can look like. I want to share a short clip. I know we've just got a few minutes left. We're going to share a 90-second clip, and then I'm going to invite uh, Fred Provencher and Doug Goulding. We just have a couple minutes just to say a sentence and then pray for this group and to pray for the Pastor's Prayer Summit. We'd love to have you in that discussion. So let's, uh, let's show the video and then invite uh, Doug and Fred to come up and close. I'll just say this and then I'll hand it off to Doug to uh, comment and pray. The Pastors Prayer Summit is a gathering of anywhere between 200 and 400 pastors from across New York and New Jersey. It is unique in a lot of ways, uh, really unprecedented in a lot of ways. Uh, but the two things that strike me most about it, um, it's for pastors and Christian workers, is the spirit of true diversity and true humility. Um, the diversity at the Pastors Prayer Summit is really unprecedented. It's not forced. You just look around you and realize that these people are different from you in almost every way. They live in a different context. They have a different ethnic background, a different theological background. And that's where the hu humility comes in. We genuinely come in and humble ourselves to learn from those who are different than us. You're sitting next to somebody who's different than you. You're going to pray with them. But you're, you're putting your authority, most of the pastors have authority, some of them have authority over very large ministries, and they come, people like Tim Keller and Roderick Caesar and Dan Mercaldo and Bob Johansson, guys who were doing ministry when I was in junior high, come and humble themselves and learn from each other. And when the people older than you humble themselves, and you're a young pastor, I've been going to the Pastors Press Summit for almost 30 years, you say, this is a place where we, where we don't bring our agenda. And uh, as we grow into being the senior people, we come and we put our agenda aside. And somebody else is saying something that's very different from you, worshiping in a way that's very uncomfortable. But you say, that's what this is about, being out of your world. So it is uh, just a wonderful opportunity for people to come together in humility uh, and in genuine diversity. And something... Something magical always happens at some point, and it could be in all kinds of different settings, uh, because you never know what's going to happen at the Pastor's Prayer Summit. It's, com it's largely unscripted, so you really have no idea. Um, but for me, that's what it has meant um, for me. Um, Pentecost, 3,000 um, gave their lives to Jesus by the sermon that um, Peter preached. But there's a preparation before Pentecost. They were together as one. They were united. United in prayer. United as one. God wants to do us all over again. And if we are willing to do the hard thing, have the hard conversation, 
we will see something greater than Pentecost because Jesus Christ himself said, greater things you will do, greater things you will do because I go back to the Father. Thank you, Mac, for coming and letting us know how that greater thing can take place through dwelling with our Heavenly Father and dwelling with each other. Fred and I, we are bridge builders. We, we're intentional about building bridges across um, racial divide. We are intentional about having the hard conversations on race because as Max said, and this is one of my favorite lines from the book Required, a divided church cannot speak into a divided world. If we have the hard conversation on race, I guarantee you, this is a message from God himself, that we will see Pentecost happen in a way that makes it look like what happened back then, like nothing. So brothers, allow God, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in you so you can have the hard conversations. For those of you who can make it to the prayer summit, it's worth going. I've been there. Uh, for those of you who can be a part of our Tuesday gathering of prayer, um, make it. Um, God wants to do something greater than he has ever done, and he wants to use you to do it. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning uh, because you have called us to come. We thank you for the privilege that you would want to use people like us, broken, imperfect men. You call us your sons, and you want to do something in us before you do something through us. So help us to abide with you. Help us to dwell with you so that we can dwell with each other. Help us to embrace the ministry of reconciliation because greater things you want to do in us and through us if we would just trust that you know what's best for us. Thank you for Mac this morning and the word that he brought to us. May none of us leave this place the same way we came. And Father, when all is said and done, may they know that we are Christians by our love, our love for each other. Help us to care deeply. Help us to love deeply. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So my role was to come up and close in prayer, and Doug just stole my thunder. Um, but uh, I do want to invite Mac to come up real quickly, and I just kind of feel led as we close out. I know we're, we're uh, itching to get out of here, but um, there's, there's two things I know that the enemy is all about. He is about causing division, and he wants to stop us from praying. And so anytime you try to strive for unity and prayer, the enemy is going to come against that. I know it firsthand, and I know that that's part of the battle that Mac has to fight every day on a global scale. So I want to just bring you in here, and maybe we'll just lay hands on you. And if you could all just rise with me real quick. We're going to pray for Mac, and even just stretch out your hands as we just lift him up before the Lord here. God, we just thank you for Mac and his faithful service to you. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have used him on a global scale to influence many, to just point people to Jesus, to, uh, uh, to be a catalyst for church growth. 
to be a catalyst for serving cities around the world, Lord, in the name of Jesus. So we just lift him up before you. We commit him to you. We just ask for a supernatural hedge of protection around him, Lord, in all of the work that he is doing. Even as we head into this prayer summit season, Lord, I know the enemy wants to come against it and to come against Mac, and I just pray that you would just watch over him, watch over his family, allow all the details to come together. It just as, as smooth as can be, Lord, that you may be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we dwell with you and as we dwell together, Lord. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are all dismissed, but if you'd like to join us in the back room by the bar to talk more about the summit, you're welcome to join us there. God bless.